Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 29, Episode 5. Coming up on this show, we've got the doppelganger Medicine Men, enlightened by the forest giantess, and Dante's secret Florence love gang. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. Those last two headlines could be intertwined in some way. Mm. Am I right? They are. Part of the same story. <laughs> Meeting the forest giantess. Are you ready? Are you ready to be enlightened sure. by a giant forest woman? Sure, it's not Bigfoot. Not? It's not Bigfoot. It's not Bigfoot it's in not a, a bikini. It's not a big, hairy forest woman. It's a... It's like a normal forest woman, but she's a normal, giant. A, a normal giant forest woman. Sure, yeah. she's huge. Yeah, we've, she's, we've all encountered that. She's ten feet tall. Uh, I'm going on no sleep, so that's how you know it's going to be a great show. Every time. Why I- are we here again? How come you've had no sleep last night? Back on the coffee train. Oh, I, I know you can't stay off it. That's caffeine. It's for because you. the caffeine dose oh, yes. is not regulated by a centralized authority. <laughs> And every time I go and get a coffee, I've got no idea how much caffeine is it. It's a roll of the dice. If I'm just 10 mils over the limit, I can't sleep. Ben, if you want to live in a free society, you have to accept unregulated caffeine. (laughs) You have to. Unfortunately, that's just all we have to do. You're just stuck with it. I took two of those stupid Joe Rogan pills this morning. Why? Because I, I'm so I was so tired that I needed You're the ultimate pick me up all weekend. Yeah, but they cancel out. See, whenever you take the Joe Rogan pills, you can't sleep either. But I thought if I haven't slept and I take the Joe Rogan pills, they cancel each other out. That's <laughs> like sound waves canceling each other out, and I will be able to sleep perfectly. The show's going to be great. Those pills are ridiculous, and what I mean by ridiculous is they do not, in my experience, they do not do what they're supposed to do. I don't feel like I'm more precise. I don't feel like I've got a better edge. I just feel like I get to the end of a show and I'm like, wow, now I'm completely awake and I won't be able to sleep all night. <laughs> that's, that's all it does. Yeah, you don't even get the placebo effect no, after no, that first experience. No, it feels like a nocebo effect in some <laughs> circumstances. Now, I've got great stuff coming up. I'm going to be talking about the secret history of Dante, diving into this fantastic book from Mark Booth. He was the author of The Secret History of the World, which was this huge bestseller uh, back in, what was it? 2012, 2013, Uh, massive New York Times bestseller going into the the secret history of the world, well, the history of the world as laid down by secret societies. Oh, cool. So kind of an alternative view of what's going on. Yeah, well, I'm beginning to believe that most of what we're told about history is part of a narrative and not being told the truth about a great many deal of things. I think there's kind of a great awakening going on amongst many people at the moment. Uh, but later on, coming up in the plus extension of the show, uh, only recently we were looking at uh, this concept of intention, how intention plays a role in uh, directing people's lives and uh, you know causing fate to take place and events to kind of you know come out the way that they're supposed to come out. And this was off the back of when we were looking at the research from the Ryan Education Centre and we were talking uh, about John Cruth and his experiments with uh, biophotons and ultraviolet luminescence of people. Well, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper because I looked into more of J.B. Ryan uh, and Louisa Ryan's research, and I ended up coming across uh, some of their research into not only precognition, but also a concept known as simultaneous telepathy. And this actually ties in with uh, that energy I was talking about when we were talking about John Cruth's work and you know other people in that area. This idea that there's this uh, pervasive energy that's around and it can be used for healing, it can be used for that sort of stuff. Well, apparently it can also be used for uh, precognition, the manifestation of tulpas, the manifestation of doppelgangers, uh, an actual physical intervention in precognition warning cases as well. 
So where someone's about to be in a great deal of danger, it's kind of like a precognitive third man effect where something steps in and takes over and saves you from a very difficult situation. Like a guardian angel. Like a guardian angel, but it's more, it's like an autoscopic kind of thing. It's like you have an out-of-body experience or you have uh, an entity which is trailing behind you, hanging around you, uh, but manifested from your consciousness. I've got some stories like that, but you fall in love with your protective entities. Oh, that's never a good idea. Madly in love. In a very disgusting, dirty way. <laughs> no, it's not that bad. Does that link to the ten foot forest woman? Yes, it oh, does. Of course, it does. Right. So, th- yeah, this is the secret history of Dante unearthing the real life mysteries of the Inferno, and of course, Dante Alighieri, the most, perhaps the most celebrated poet in the history of Western literature. Some may argue this is Dante's Inferno. Dante's Inferno, yeah. the Divine Comedy. He was born in twelve sixty five in what we now know at know as Tuscany, and grew up in Florence, and he called Florence Rome's most beautiful daughter in a beautiful city known for its art and architecture. And uh, he points out, Booth points out, that it's fired the imaginations as much of, of the world's people as much as any city in the world. Mm. And have you been before? No, I haven't. Have you? Uh, when I went to Europe when I was, uh, I think I was 19, my first trip, it was my favourite place really? out of anywhere in, on the continent. Just right. the artwork and seeing, uh, you know, Michelangelo's David's there. and That's just, a classical it's place. It's just everything there is beautiful. You're just walking down the beautiful streets and seeing the plazas. It's, it's just incredible. And the thing about this story, though, is that Florence in the time of Dante was a place where secret societies and intrigue would openly clash. Booth says there were hidden, heretical, sometimes occult beliefs in the city that led to maiming, torture, mass murder, and even cannibalism. Oh, how does that happen? So I was looking forward to a nice Renaissance story. Maybe we'll talk about some paintings, (laughs) some sculptures. (laughs) No. There's a supernatural force in Florence, according to Booth, and the history is full of supernatural beings. Like there's a bunch of bronze, well, there's a bronze statue of a fawn in one of the famous piazzas. And yeah, there's- like a satyr? Yeah, there's legends and stories of it moving. Like people will see it on certain days of the year. It'll be dancing and then they'll look back and it'll stop. So there's all those kind of rumors surrounding the statue. But one of my favorite stories from the history was apparently sourced from this cabbage seller who had a stall outside the Palazzo della Cavalleria this famous, you know, piazza. And according to this old widow, there was a secret underground passageway and there were hidden chambers beneath the palazzo where prominent kind of the elite of the city would uh, sneak in and have their secret meetings. She claimed that there would be witches uh, and wizards who would gather for these secret ceremonies. And if a witch died without an apparent successor, the group would have to meet to discuss the problem. They have to find someone else to take their place. What, you mean recruit someone into the fold? Yeah, and she's reported that she would sometimes see finely dressed gentlemen and ladies who weren't part of the secret society would enter these secret passageways, but then would never be seen again. They would just completely vanish. So is that suggesting that they would be killed off if they didn't pass the rigorous tests? Well, part of the rumour was that there were these secret contraptions, almost like an Indiana Jones movie, where if they were going out through the entrance gate again, going back into the square, there was some kind of contraption that would swing out of the wall and kick (laughs) them into a pit of snakes or something. It's all these crazy rumours. Or there's a pit down there full of all these dead bodies. 
So there's all there's always been these rumors of a powerful underground of the city, at kind of beneath its not facade, but beneath all the wonder and beauty from the Renaissance. And so, what time period are we talking? I know you mentioned earlier, you say the 1300s, that's the kind of time period yep. we're looking at. 14th century, Dante was born 1265, so 13th century. And uh, Booth says uh, a lot of this started, this kind of mystical undercurrent really started in the, the early 15th century, in 1439. This stranger waltzed into Florence. His name was Gemistus Plethon. He rode into town from Byzantium and he was carrying with him a collection of ancient manuscripts that were said to have come from inside the pyramids at Giza. And what was said to be contained inside these manuscripts? Well, Cosimo de Medici, the ruler of Florence, you know, the rich Medici banking family, Cosimo got his hands on these uh, documents. And at the time, he had hired all these scholars to translate Plato and he told all of them, all right, stop what you're doing. We've got, we've got to start translating these manuscripts. Uh, he believed they contained some kind of old magic, some old mysticism to them. And these were essentially the key texts for the Hermetica. Oh. So the, you know, the really ancient mystical religion that can be traced back to ancient Egypt. Yes. And that started to bubble up in the city as well. And th- there had always been these rumours, he says, of secret societies, secret teachings that would enable you to bend the world to your will. So here comes these manuscripts and the Medici family and the members of their inner circle now get a chance to read this wisdom for themselves. So again, there's the idea that this was not knowledge that was spread amongst all of Florence, but held within the most powerful families, within the elite of the elite. Well, it becomes a cult, very much in the the literal sense that it's hidden. And well, when you look at the artwork that emerged after this time period, it's full of occult references. Is it really? So he says, if you go to Florence, this is the number one place in the world to see artwork with all this occult imagery in it. And what kind of imagery is that? Well, one example, the famous Birth of Venus by Botticelli, you know, where she's standing on the clam. Yes, yeah. There's the the surf underneath her. Yeah. Booth says that this symbolizes the cosmic mind. It's the goddess emerging from the sea. It symbolizes the cosmic mind and the the frothy foam is like... Oh, I was hoping you were going to tell me that it was like a Bigfoot in the background. It's like a very tiny one. Not that kind of mysticism, but the frothy throne foam is the seed that starts creation. Like a primordial soup. Yeah, yeah I guess you could look at it that way. My favorite story was um, Michelangelo's secret door because he designed the Medici chapel, but there's always been this legend that he built this secret door. So if anyone was coming to kill him, if he had any enemies, he would have like a safe room, right? <laughs> How could an artist have enemies that are go- like, you're going to have to create a door, it's a Flor- quick escape? It's 15th century Florence. Everyone's got enemies. <laughs> he's got, yeah, he's got a panic room. He had a secret panic yeah, room. Yeah, right. And the rumor is that this has never been discovered to this day. Or it has, but it's being kept under wraps. Yeah, well, that's one way to look at it. But the idea is that there's some secret hatch, there's some secret lever you got to pull or something, and a secret door will open. So they'll be nope the hell out of there. Well, there'll be all these uh, Michelangelo paintings that no one's ever seen before. Like he stashed away a bunch of his work in there, which is a really cool idea that that's somewhere in there. So Dante's family, he he wasn't 
part of the richest family in Florence, but they were comfortably wealthy. Uh, they had a gene- uh, genealogy that went back to nobility. His father was a businessman, moneylender, but sadly, his mother, Bella, passed away when he was only two years old. And Booth said, this is kind of the story of his whole life. It's a story of love and loss. We don't know much about his education, he points out, but we know he must have been extraordinarily well-educated because of, you know, the the quality of his writing and how he commanded the language and how he referenced with such authority. But he was said to be a solemn, solitary child, but often overtaken by vivid dreams. And this is what we often hear about mystical people throughout history is that they have visions and he would have these visions, these vivid dreams while he was awake. So they're not just the normal dreams you and I perhaps experience. There's something else. Are they premonitions or are they just visions? It's everything you can imagine. Visions of the future, visions of other dimensions, visions of higher beings. When he was nine years old, his father took him to a Mayday party. And this is important to the story because it sets up a a greater argument that Booth is trying to make. So at this party, there's a bunch of other children present. And again, he's young, he's only nine years old. But the daughter of the host was there. She was nearly eight years old and her nickname was Beast, short for Beatrice. And she had a beautiful, delicate face and she was wearing a scarlet dress this day. But she was a bit quiet, reserved for her age. And apparently after lunch, the children went off to play together and it was then that Dante fell in love with her so deeply on this day when he's nine years old, he never stopped thinking about her. And he would later write that his inner self in the most secret room in his heart trembled and he spent the rest of his boyhood looking for this angelic girl. And this is the kind of thing where obviously... He's a young boy. He's not, it's not lustful thoughts. He's not, you know, attracted to her physical form. There's something supernatural going on for a nine-year-old boy to be struck down by this kind of, you know, what's, what's the old? Oh, yes. The yeah. love at first sight mm-hmm. feeling. Being shot with Cupid's arrow. Just immediately head over heels with this, with this young girl. And the thing that makes this fascinating is that it's like he goes into an altered state of consciousness. And the the crazy thing about this is he always went looking for her on the streets of Florence as he grew up, but it was nine years before he saw her again. So he was 17 and he was walking with two older women. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon or she was walking with two older women. She was wearing pure white. And according to his writings, she greeted him so sweetly that it's like he went into a trance. He went into some kind of altered state of consciousness. And in his first book of poems, he describes her skin as pearly white and says, flame-like spirits of love were darting from her eyes. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily love. So she had like laser beams of love injecting into him. So it's a bit more like this. Oh, no. <laughs> I know where this is going. <laughs> and this is so this is such a bizarre thing for the time as well which i'll get to in a moment yeah well it does have a cliche kind of sound to it but it sounds like it's a very modern thing that's interesting that you say that because it's not even a cliche yet this is a novel concept for the time mm. so he staggers back to his room to be alone and he tries to make sense of what on earth has just happened to him 
and he immediately falls asleep and he goes into one of these visions. He has one of these psychic visions where an angel appears to him carrying a sleeping woman wearing a blood red shawl. And he recognizes this woman as the girl he's fallen in love with. It's Beatrice. And this angelic figure wakes her up and makes her reluctantly eat this beating, flaming, bloody mass. And Dante Dante realizes it's his heart that's on fire in this vision. And he wakes up in a cold sweat. (laughs) He's like, ah! Is this... Is this like a succubus entity or something? Like it sounds like for that kind of like vision, it sounds very demonic. No, I mean it's yeah, well, there's just like a warning in it, mm. or it's 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 pointing to the importance of the meeting, like the drastic weight of the destiny behind this meeting, mm-hmm. the fact that she's consuming his heart. It's like he is meant for this woman, and he doesn't understand why. Now. You might hear about this meeting, this falling over in love at first sight. Uh, What's interesting about it is Booth says it's perhaps one of the first times that anything like this has appeared in literature. Oh. In the West. Like, anyone's described this love at first sight feeling. Yeah. Uh, And it's because of Dante's writings about this that we have, you know, Romeo and Juliet. And he says maybe even Brad and Angelina. (laughs) Like, this is obviously an older book. He does point out that ideas of romantic love like this had started to seep into Europe gradually from the Islamic world, from an Arabian influence. But it's interesting that this is occurring in Florence, which is, you know, kind of only recently, and when I say recently, in the last few decades, kind of being considered to be, you know, Italians are very passionate and love. And, you know, it's like, I mean, I know the French are too, but the Italians, you know, kind of have that real thing about love and romance about them. Well, where does that come from? Well, that's what I'm, keep, what's I'm questioning. Yeah, keep that question in mind. That's a good thing to ponder. Uh, so, in, in terms of this Arabian influence, he actually traces this back to an Arab sheikh who published a description similar to Dante's about 30 years earlier. He was walking around the, you know, the great stone at Mecca. And uh, one night he was doing the ritual walk and a few verses came into his head and he started reciting them loudly just enough to be heard. And suddenly he felt a touch of a hand on his shoulder. And this shake, he said that the touch was softer than silk and he turns around and he finds himself looking into the eyes of the daughter of, her name was Nizam. This is the daughter of the man who he's staying with in the city. It's his host, the daughter of his host. And he's startled by her flashing eyes. There's something about her eyes, like Dante describes mm. these daggers of love coming out of them. And this just this scintillating beauty. It sounds like a form of hypnotism, though. Well, when he, he says she smiles, he felt as if the sun was rising. Later, he writes about her dark tresses and her honeyed tongue, and he's writing about a garden of my body's country, a dove is perched on a bow, dying of desire, melting with passion. But it's just like... His loins are flame. Yeah, it's like that. But this has never been written about before. This is a novel thing. And this kind of stuff kind of seeped into Europe. Uh, he said, the gar- Thy gardens are wet with dew, and thy roses are blooming, thy flowers are smiling, and thy bows are fresh. Yuck. <laughs> So, this is where it gets to what you were pondering earlier, where Booth says, look, it can be argued that when you fall in love, you're having an experience that 
has first been nurtured in the minds of these men, in this uh, Ibn Arabi, his name was, and in the minds of Dante. But there's two schools of thought here. So he points out that number one is, I think, how most people would view it today, that human nature never really changes. It's kind of some things are set. Yeah, I agree with that. And people have always felt the same emotions. It's just that before Dante's time, it had never occurred to anyone to write it down. And, and suddenly this Arabian guy and Dante, they, they have this flourish of genius to write down these feelings. Or the, a group of entities step into human you know, um, history about that time and that's why it's, why it's being reported. Well, you, you're almost on the right track. So the other argument, and I tend to agree with this argument, is that, and this he says this is something Dante would have subscribed to, he says the human spirit and by implication human consciousness is constantly evolving, it's changing over time. And 30 years earlier, before Dante had written about this, love was about lust in a way. Marriage was about bargaining for comfort. It was an agreement. It was about money. It was about status. And in those days, he says, marriage didn't have the high expectations of intimacy that we understand as normal today. He said- it was more like a business transaction back then? Not so much a business transaction, but it just didn't have the same passion and, I guess, connection we would take for granted. Uh, Because a lot of the marriages were still arranged and it was your duty in many cases to get married. And obviously, intimacy would grow over time, but not in the way that he's describing here. But th- this other view says that human nature grew, became more subtle, became greater in a way. And along came more impractical and otherworldly notions of romantic love, the love that we think about today. He uh, says the expectation we all now have is something that Dante helped create. Yeah. So that's the crux of the argument. It's like, you need the human beings need inspirational figures and great thinkers and leaders to demonstrate something, and then over but also time, incubate concepts to then you know yeah. get them out. But then I wonder, does that contribute now to why we have a, a higher divorce rate? Because like talking about marriages, previous, and I'm, I don't truly believe that marriages should be about convenience, but if you've got these really unrealistic expectations of constant like that love and that romance and that you know fiery sparkling eyes like with marriage that's not always the case yeah we know that it's not always the case yeah well maybe something of the duty and the commitment has been lost Mm. uh but it's a really fascinating thing to ponder it's like you can take something that we all take for granted like we all understand what loyalty is for example but did it take great people in history to demonstrate what loyalty is. Were human beings able to understand the concept? Did people know what loyalty was before a great loyal person demonstrated what it was? I don't know the answer. I don't even know how to uh, approach that. That's, That's the question. Were people always loyal? Have people always been loyal? Has that always been a concept for human beings? Or does someone need to come down and demonstrate it to human beings? So just mm. interesting thing to ponder. Mm. And so this is the argument with Dante is that he showed the West this idea of this love, this intimacy, and like something supernatural about it as well. So Booth points out that this falling in love gave both Dante and Ibn Arabi 
an altered state of consciousness. It really did propel them into a different mind. And it, it gave them a sense of the transforming and guiding forces in the world that had brought them to this place. For Dante, it was almost like he felt like his purpose was somehow connected to this love. Mm. So they felt that great secrets and mysteries, new dimensions of the world, were opening themselves up to them in a way that transcended the ordinary and the everyday. So yeah, Booth is arguing this is more than just literary influences because in the Middle Ages, uh, look, everyone believed without question that spiritual beings were just above your head all the time. Spiritual beings were always there. There was no atheists in the Middle Ages. Well, I, I told you it was about that space. It was considered, you know, it's not the heavens. There was a, a space between the heavens and the earth that was inhabited by beings. Yeah. You know, it was readily believed. And there was this understanding that God would send spiritual beings down to guide humanity into its next stage of spiritual development. And there's also this understanding that different archangels ruled over different periods of history. And during those periods of history, people would encounter those archangels. They would run it into would them guide frequently. Humanity. And the character of those entities would also influence the people of that particular time period. Now, in one of his early writings, Dante describes Beatrice as one of these entities for him, as made by God to portend to something new, to almost guide maybe him, maybe humanity into something else, into something greater. And all through his boyhood, he had these dreams, he had these visions, intense visions, but he believed the cosmos was trying to tell him something important because of this like head over heels infatuation he had, this spiritual connection with this woman. So, you can see these connections, like Booth points out that there's mystics and saints of the era that had similar visions, not necessarily related to love like he's talking about. But there were later visionaries like Joan of Arc, you can compare this to. But he actually draws a connection to a modern example, and this is the Irish mystic Lorna Byrne, who's written, uh, I think, about three or four books, very popular books, about the visions of angels she has. She sees spirits of the dead, she claims. She has frequent visions of high spiritual beings, but also ghosts, demons, poltergeists, shadow creatures, everything we talk about on the show, she claims to be able to perceive it. Uh, apparently, the Archangel Michael also appears to her regularly. Spiritual beings have always been as real to her as physical objects. So, she's one of these cases where, for years, she just assumed that everyone else could see them too, mm. ever since she was a young girl. Yeah. Now, Mark, Mark Booth, the author, says he's known her for years, good friends with this woman, and he's convinced she's telling the truth. He's convinced that her experiences with angels are realer than real and beyond you know, other people that claim they see Archangel Michael three times a week. Her seeing, he says, is of a different order. And the reason he says this is because he understands the Christian and Islamic mystical traditions. And the way she describes things is almost identical to the way it would be described in the Middle Ages, for example. Is there a possibility that she's just uh, extremely well-read in these these ideas and these concepts? No, if you, I mean, if you read her books, it's not... It's, it's like one of the stories we'd cover on the show okay. where she's like conversing with them right, and having encounters. And, it, yeah, I mean, just from 
the research we've done, if you looked at her encounters, you'd go, okay, she's one of these people that can see these things. So it's not like one of the stories that we get from Blog Talk Radio where they're claiming that <laughs> Archangel Mick is coming in. No, right. not something that we would tear apart. Although we should probably look at her books just in case there's a chance. <laughs> we'll do that later. But the reason he brings her up is that in her second book, it's called Stairways to Heaven. There's a description of an encounter with one of these individuals that may be the same as what Dante's Beatrice is. So Lorna, this this Irish mystic, she'd been visiting a friend in hospital and it was really busy traffic and she got stuck in traffic. And then Archangel Michael and Elijah and some other angels gathered around her. I don't know if they sit in the passenger seat of the car. Yeah. <laughs> like, how did they appear? And were they wearing robes? Did they have wings? Like, is it that traditional sense? Or? Maybe she's in a minivan and they all just take seats in the back. <laughs> Even better, it's an angel clown car. <laughs> yeah, they're just packed in. Uh, and they always turn up when something important is about to happen, like something momentous. But she's just stuck in traffic. So she's thinking, what is going on? Anyway, everything goes quiet, super still. The Oz effect kicks in. Nothing seems to be moving. The cars, there's no people, there's no birds, there's no wind in the trees, there's nothing. And then she sees this woman walking along the sidewalk. She's in a navy blue coat. And next to her, she's got this boy of about 10 years old. And he's, you know what 10-year-olds are like? They start walking behind their mum because it's not Picking cool. up sticks. It's and... not cool to walk right next to your mum. Yeah. He's tall and skinny, this kid. He's got straight black hair and he's kind of ambling behind her. And they start to cross the road. And halfway across the road, the woman turns and calls out to her son. But it looked to Lorna as if they were both moving in slow motion. There was this weird time distortion to the whole scene, almost as if every step was all these waves of movement. And it almost looked as if this boy's feet weren't even touching the ground, as if he was partly there, but partly not. And she noticed that he's surrounded by this strange blue crimson light. Oh, weird. Now, when he's about five feet away from Lorna, and again, she's just sitting in her car watching this, he turns and smiles at her. And she says, it's this radiant smile. And the light around him seems to burst outwards as she says his soul moves out of his physical body. And she sees a nine-year-old boy, still a 10-year-old boy standing there, and next to him is the spirit of this giant angel, like 10 feet tall, massive wings, bright eyes, creamy colored robes with tints of gold in it. And instantly she sees this as a separate entity, this separate angel. And then it suddenly shrinks back inside the body of the boy. And she's looking at the eyes of the boy. And they're these deep, pools of this blue crimson and she suddenly understands that she's what she's seeing is the angel looking out of this boy's eyes the angel is inside the boy yeah the boy then turns and runs off after his mother as any boy would now lorna turns to the passenger seat to ask archangel mick what the hell just happened (laughs) what is going on and he just says an angel dwells in that boy's soul And they tell her that what she's seen is incredibly rare, incredibly special. And he actually tells her she has to pray for this young boy. Now, Michael tells Lorna that this boy needs prayers because there's forces in the world that want to destroy him. And this leads back to something we might get into on this segment. 
is that Dante eventually became part of these secret societies that were in battle with other forces that were of of the opposing side. Mm-hmm. It goes to this idea of a, a constant battle between good and evil. So are the secret societies good and this these other groups bad? Is that the idea? Well, there's other secret societies that, that are might on be the bad. side. Right, yeah. So going back to Dante, as he approached manhood, uh, he started to understand this. He started to understand that there were these supernatural forces in the world that could erupt at any second. There were the forces of good and, and the forces of evil in this constant battle. And Lorna Byrne has written about this, this Irish mystic. She's written about these kindred spirits saying that we all have one. But she says, it's very rare that you will spend your life with one of these spirits, these kindred spirits. You might just brush up against them in the street. It might be a chance encounter, she says, for five minutes. It might be a quick meeting. Or they're in and out of your life very quickly. So if they're a kindred spirit, are they a guardian spirit? Or are they just like, what is it? What's the concept? She says that there's a spiritual influence that will pass between you and this entity and your entire life will be transformed by this meeting. Oh, so you have what one passing meeting and then it spiritually transforms you. Yeah, it might be one, like Dante. He has this encounter with this woman and she's kind of in and out of his life. He sees her a couple of times, but um, he doesn't get to spend his life with her. But it has this effect where it's like it wakes him up. His consciousness is changed forever. So So these entities are the Morpheus, essentially, of the spiritual world? It's kind of like that. And and Booth says there's this persistent tradition in mysticism that when a person is ready, a a teacher will appear. And Mm, I've heard that. This actually happened in a different form beyond Beatrice for Dante. This was in uh, 1283, Dante's father died, and he was brought up in the wider family circle in Florence. And it was here that he met and fell under the spell of an older man named Brunetto, Brunetto, sorry, Latini. And this guy was a renowned scholar, uh, was an expert in all these different branches of learning, but he also had a secret. He had a secret teaching and a secret spiritual practice that would take Dante to the next level entirely. So this is where we get to hear about Latini's background. So this is a a story, it's 1260. This is five years before Dante's born. This guy, Brunetto Latini, he's passing through the Alps. He's been spending time in Spain. He's been serving as an ambassador for Florence. And he, he's riding through the Alps and he comes across this Italian student who's on a mule riding in the opposite direction. And he's like, buongiorno, is, is there any news from Florence? You know, what's been, I've been gone for years. What's been happening in my hometown? And what this student tells him is really bad news for Latini. There's a political party that Latini's a part of called the Gelf Party. And this party, this political party has been expelled, like just kicked out. And their members have been thrown in prison. They're persecuted. So he's basically realized on his way home that he's now a political dissident. And if he goes home, he's probably going to be thrown in jail, possibly killed. So he's like, oh my gosh. He says, thanks for the great news. You know, see you later. And he's so shocked by this news. He just keeps, you know, riding his horse and obviously despondent. Well, he leaves them. He's so distressed thinking what to do. He doesn't pay attention to where he's going. And I don't think he's on a horse. I think he's walking in the story. And he he leaves the main path 
And without noticing, he's on this kind of less lesser-traveled little forest path. And after a while of just pondering what the hell he's going to do, he looks up and he realizes, crap, I'm, I'm lost in the forest. He's like, I've no idea where I am. So he's like, crap, he keeps walking along this little path. And eventually he sees a mountain looming over the trees. And then something utterly bizarre happens. All these rabbits, mice and deer and foxes and wolves, there's a bear that comes out. And some creatures he didn't even recognize, they all, like a cartoon, they all start coming out of the forest and lining up in front of him. How very Snow White of him. Yeah, it really is like that. It's like a fairy tale. Like they're in some kind of uh, club together and they just sit down watching him. And he's like, what the hell is going on? And then he realizes they're actually surrounding someone. And he looks up and he sees a giant woman a giantess of the forest, this beautiful, hot, 10-foot forest thought. You should have told me. I could have had a sound effect ready to go. (laughs) And he's like... (laughs) (laughs) He's loving it. And this giant woman, this giant hot ass, smiles down at him. Forest thought. <laughs> she says, I am nature, and by the sovereign creator was I created. I make whatever he wills. I am his working hand. And he starts wondering, what, lady? is this the divine guidance he's been looking for? Because he's had visions and dreams his entire life as well. And he starts to think, has he pierced pierced beyond the veil to the other side? So he kneels down before this giant forest woman, this great visionary creature, and he asks her to tell him her story. And she starts telling him how she's going to explain to him the subtle genius and power of the human mind. She explains that God had first created the world out of his own nature, but then it fell through the pride of the mad angel. She goes on to tell Brunetto about the history of the world. She shows him a vision of the creation of the planets and the four rivers running out of Eden. Made of the purest water and precious stones, he sees generations of animals being created, tigers, lions, camels. He sees griffins and creatures he's never even heard of or that he can't recognize. He sees, he says, Ethiopian insects as big as dogs that dig up gold with their feet. That's a new one. <laughs> very, very specific. Very unique. And the history of the world encompassed the temptation of Eve by the serpent, the murder of Abel, the Tower of Babel, the siege of Troy, he sees. So he has this like 3D virtual HDR 8K vision of history. And the goddess explains at the end of this that humankind is the pinnacle of creation. It forms the crown of the work. And the crown of the human mind is the ability to discern good from evil. And she then tells him to dive deep inside himself. And this is not explained super clearly. Why are you smirking? What are you picturing? No, nothing. (laughs) All I would say when she asked him to dive deep, I'm like, where is this going? (laughs) Well, it's, it's very mystical because he must somehow use this psychic vision to look internally because 
it, it's like that idea introspection that you hear from the east where you know that someone in buddhism might say that you know there's a universe inside the human body something like that kind of idea because he looks inside and he sees all of the divine powers and life functions within his own being. Like he understands principles of the universe that work within his own human body. He sees how within the human body, there's the elements of fire, air, water, and earth. He sees the four virtues of prudence, temperaments, bravery, and justice. And they're not abstract ideas. They're actual real physical, spiritual forces and principles that he can see how they're operating. And he dives down inside his own body and sees the movements of the planets and how they work on his own being. Like he sees how we're moved by desire by the planet Venus, how Mars plays on our anger and the moon does something else to us. And he then flies up through the heavenly hierarchies and finds him swimming in a great sleepy ocean so it's really starting to sound like an ecstatic near-death experience, an out-of-body experience, a spiritual revelation. And then he awakes to find himself still at the feet of this goddess. And he's just in this ecstatic rapture. He bends down to kiss her size 16 feet. And as soon as he kisses those big toes, she vanishes. She disappears. What about the animals? I don't know what happened to the animals. I don't know if they're important to the story at this point. So he can't go back to Florence. He heads uh, he heads off to Paris. And when he arrives in Paris, this is a really interesting time because Paris is just awash with new ideas and new concepts. He meets Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquinas and all these incredible thinkers. He would be immersed in the dangerous ideas of the Cathars and, you know, the secret societies there. We don't fully know what he got into except... We do know one thing for sure is that he was eventually initiated into the Knights Templar and uh, he became a part of their lay order, the uh, Fede Santa, which is like, it's like a division of the Knights Templar that is used by lay people to spread. So they don't have to become celibate and become like warrior monks. Right. Yep. They can still live in society, mm -hmm. but he joins the, the Knights Templar. So, in 1266, in the politics of Florence underwent a change and suddenly he was able to go back and he brought back with him all this knowledge from Paris. He brought back with him this wisdom that he'd received from this giant woman in the forest and he actually took Dante as his disciple. So, the implication is by his initiation to the, into the Templars, by the secret societies that he may be involved with in Paris at the time, that he was very much a practitioner of one of these mystery schools, one of these secret societies. And by taking Dante as his disciple, Dante, of course, became a part of these secret societies as well. So then that puts a new spin on the Divine Comedy, on Dante's visions of hell and purgatory and the heavens. Because well, it's when, almost like he's seen them. When you read about the Divine Comedy, when you read about Dante's Inferno, it's always from the point of, oh, well, this represents like this. This is like an allegory to this. And what he's describing here is a metaphor for this. Mm. Whereas if you look at the mystical schools that he was connected with. No, it's visions. 
it's they're actually going to other places. They're entering other dimensions and experiencing real tangible things. It's more akin to what we would discuss with an out-of-body experience or near-death experience. The other realm. Than some kind of uh, literary metaphor for the world or some spiritual thing. Now, what we know from Dante's writings at this time is he studied so hard, he basically went blind. Wow. Because he says in his notes that he his eyes were so weakened with reading. And I think you and I would probably relate to this. Oh, I mean, we have the day. Like, oh. We have the iPad effect, but it's probably similar. He said that he would go outside and look at the stars and there was just like a mass of white, like his vision was starting to go. But he claims he just rested them with pure water and eventually his vision came back. But it gives you a sense where he's just reading and reading and studying and studying and studying. And one thing that Dante was taught by Latini was, quote, how to unfold his eternal life. So this has always been a mystery of what exactly this means, unfold his eternal life. Now, we do know that he became a Templar too. In the Vienna Museum, there's this medallion and it's engraved by Pisanello. It has a depiction of Dante on one side and you flip it over and it's got the letters F-S-K-I-P-F-T. Now, according to our favourite French researcher, René Gounon, mm-hmm. these letters stand for Freighter Sancte Kadosh Imperialis Principatus Freighter Templarius. And that is essentially a holy sanctified knight of the Empire and Brother Templar. So he became a member of this secret Knights Templar society and he became initiated into their order. So then you got to go into the Templars and this is a whole other thing and I feel like this is another 10 shows to go into this and Booth does go into how the Templars had built up their power in Europe, how they operated kind of on their own. They were outside of the jurisdiction of, of kings and the Pope, how they... Were you they know, persecuted or were they just hidden? Well, this is before they were persecuted. Right. And, you know, we've spoken about on the show how they, at this point. they basically invented traveler's checks. You yeah, know, they yeah. were They had this banking system and this network. But at the time, for the sake of our story, we can point out that they were locked in mortal combat with the forces of Islam and had been for about 170 years. And they were expelled from Jerusalem in 1190. Now, what he points out, though, is that to the Muslims... The Templars and all Europeans, they basically would have been like um, barbarians. Mm-hmm. Like that's part of the the view of this time in history is because the, the Muslims were more advanced. Like they had better mass, they had better chemistry. They were just a more advanced civilization at the time. And it's likely that the Templars would have absorbed a lot of this knowledge. So he goes through how they eventually formed an alliance with the assassins which was the, um, what were they called? They were the, they had a different name, but they became known as the Assassins. They were the Is- Ismailis. And uh, they were like this secret society famous for their libraries and engineering and their building structures. And the idea is the Knights Templar got a lot of knowledge from their building. Yeah, that's what it seems to be. It's like a lot of, uh, like an acquisition of knowledge. Yeah, they had a, an alliance with them and they rescued a bunch of um mystical Essenes. Remember the Essenes? Mm-hmm. I'm speaking about that uh, with, I think it was Christopher Dunn's work, looking at this idea that Jesus wasn't part of the mainstream Jewish religion at the time. He was actually part of this Essene cult. 
uh, this Essene order. And there's this implication from um, the author here, Mark Booth, that the Essenes gave the Knights Templar some kind of spiritual knowledge as well. And he goes through all these examples where they just had all this contact with mystical societies. So the the point of all this is that they were influenced by these secret schools of mysticism. It would have carried through to Dante's time. So Dante would have been initiated in Sufism and all these different concepts. The Templars also believed in this spiritual war. So they had this idea that there was going to be, and there's a whole other concept on how this came about through different prophets, but they believed that there was a new Jerusalem coming soon and that there would essentially be a new order of of life on earth and people would be returned to spirituality and everyone would have magical supernormal powers. But there was this secret occult force that was working against them that was led by Satan and there were secret groups in society that they were in battle with. So the way he breaks it down, the Knights Templar literally believed that they needed to master all these mystical orders to build up their supernatural powers for this great battle. Okay. Like yep. they needed to be They're able prepping. to shoot laser beams out of their palms at the evil warlocks from the occult dark brotherhoods. Yeah, makes <laughs> to, sense to me. To put it in an MU context. And so he goes through how this is connected to uh, ancient Egypt and you can trace this back to this almost tradition. There's uh, some document that was uncovered in like 100 AT, 100 AD that apparently links Jesus to some kind of mystical secret order. So to break this down very simply, the idea is that there was a mainstream church that was founded by Peter. This was the exterior church, the exterior Christianity. But John the Evangelist was the founder of a secret inner church. And this was the mystical tradition that had been passed on from ancient times and part of the order that Jesus was allegedly a part of. So you get into these very kind of murky historical areas of secret orders and secret societies. But ultimately, what he's building up is that this is what Dante was talking about in the unfolding of his eternal life. It was initiating him into these ancient secret mystical arts. So we know that while Dante was still in Florence and a, a young man, he in his writings, he refers to this brotherhood and they were known as the Fideli de Amore, the faithful lovers. And it was this secret society of hot young men in Florence. They were aristocrats. They were the gilded youth of Florence. So the, you know, like the rich, the rich kids of Wall Street, <laughs> they had their own secret society. They had a, a special emblem. They were called the Secret Society of the Initiates. And what were they doing? Well, we don't really know. All we know is that it was all about secret love. And when I the hear... The love that dare not speak its name? When I hear a, a group of hot young men in Florence with a no. secret society <laughs> about secret love, I'm sorry, but I'm just thinking... Gay. <laughs> Can you blame me? Why are you go? Okay, yeah, you're right, all right. Yep. <laughs> And he, he would address this like he would write to his initiates and, and talk about how others must not learn what is for the few. And he became one of the leaders of this group. Hang on. So you're talking about a gay mafia in Italy? 
Well, that's what I was thinking, because he's writing about all they're discovering is this mystical love and this altered state of love consciousness and how it's all a secret love. But when you read into it further, what they're actually doing is they're doing things that are the opposite of the church, right? They're moving away from the church dogma and the emphasis on what they're doing in their mystical practice is turning attention to the inner self, rather than following the dogma of the church. And it needed to be secret love because that would be burnt at the stake. But I'm not getting the secret love part. Is it like secret loving yourself? Is that the idea? Like an introspection, a, um, I don't know, an inspection of your ego? It's, it's got to do with compassion. With, for yourself? Yeah, well, not necessarily for yourself, but just the practice of love, like loving right. compassion. Yeah. And like what we hear with some, you know, a lot of new ages, like the secret is love. Yeah, like that's so often the cliche yeah. at the end of a story where someone says, it and then I love. discovered that the universe is all love. This is kind of what they were doing. But we don't actually know what their practices were because they all came from these mystery schools that we know nothing of. And it's Italy, so there's art dealing going on. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> So, let me skip ahead in the young man's story. So, he he fights in a bunch of battles. He's like a a competent warrior. Um, He does fall ill, but has a series of horrifying dreams that are portraying the death of Beatrice, this woman he has a connection with. this is the premonitions sort of stuff that comes through. Yeah, he sees her soul being carried up to heaven, and he says earthquakes and the sun darkening. And she dies shortly after this in 1290. She's only 24 years old. And this is a huge blow because this was his soulmate, uh, even though they weren't married. Like, he ended up marrying someone else because it was arranged, and she ended up marrying someone else because it was arranged, but he still had this love for her. She was that guardian angel for him. Uh But he would suffer another exile after this. So, there's this kind of long, convoluted story where due to his Templar connections, he rises through the ranks in Florence and he eventually becomes prior of the city, which is almost like the mayor. And he's sent as an ambassador to Rome to essentially talk to the Pope, discuss with the Pope a tax dispute. And at the time, a strange new Pope had been elected. And I just, I love this story because this is a story of a possibly retarded Pope in history. What? So, <laughs> there was this holy man, right? His name was Pietro da Morone. And he was this old hermit and he lived in the mountain. And for some reason, a delegation of kings and archbishops trekked up this mountain, made this incredibly dangerous, difficult journey, journey to find this old holy hermit in his cave. And they get there and this guy's stuck to the side of the cave. <laughs> what do you mean stuck? So because he'd he'd never cut his hair because he's an old mountain hermit, he's got all this ridiculously long beard. He's got hair down to his feet. He never cuts it. And he'd been leaning against his cave like maybe he fell asleep. And overnight, because the cave was all moist, it had gotten so cold that the wall had frozen and all his hair was stuck, was stuck in the ice. Like he was like an ice man stuck to the wall of the cave. So all these nobility and all the archbishops, they're looking for the new pope and they see this guy and he's just like, like a cartoon stuck to the side of the cave. 
Anyway, they look at him. And that immediately makes you go, well, that's our new Pope. They free him, take him down the mountain, and crown him Pope Celestine V. I was like, what? What's going on? There must be more to this story. Anyway, they soon realized they had made a dreadful mistake because Celestine V turned out to be almost completely illiterate and perhaps even a bit simple. So he was an idiot. He was completely unable to cope with the administrative duties expected of being the Pope. What do you expect? <laughs> you pulled him out of a frozen cave. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Like, maybe they, they saw they, that he was stuck, vision, to, yeah. stuck to the cave and they thought this was a message from God or Did something. Did they do some ritual and they looked into one of those moonrake bowls and was like, <laughs> oh, well, look, he's up in this cave. We'll go get him. Yeah, like an old holy woman said, you will find the next Pope and he'll be stuck to the cave. So... The way they got around this is they they obviously they realized they just they just got a retarded pope, so they needed to fix this. So what they do? So they push him off a cliff because he's simple. Because he's really simple. This is what they do. They get a really long tube, and the one end of the tube they tie it behind the the baseboard of his bed, and they run this really long tube and they run it out the window and on down the ledge and into the next room. And one of the cardinals sits on the other end of this pipe and goes, This is God speaking. Surely he can't be that simple. You must abdicate the the papacy. You must do it now. This is God. And uh, he abdicates (laughs) because he's an idiot. (laughs) Because he's just a retarded guy that got stuck on the side of a wall in a cave. And yeah. No, yeah, but no, who's the retarded ones here? The guy <laughs> stuck to the wall or the people that recruited him? <laughs> well, everyone in this story. <laughs> the only smart guy is the guy that came out with the pipe idea. That was ingenious. So after he's abdicated, uh, Benedetto Catani is crowned as Pope Boniface VIII. And so, Far greater administrative so, abilities, I well, imagine. This guy's a bit of a, a snake, right? So when Dante gets to Florence to negotiate all this tax stuff... Um, he's basically, he's been on the the other side. Well, he's on the wrong side of this new Pope. But when he gets there, this new Pope just wants to keep him there. Like he's being very gracious and wants to have him for dinners and won't let him leave and keeps putting off their business discussion. Anyway, Dante eventually realizes that he's been tricked by this new Pope because while he was stuck in Rome, the Pope had essentially allowed Dante's opponents in Florence to take over. And in January 1302, Dante was convicted in his absence. He wasn't even around to defend himself. He was convicted of all these trumped up charges of bribery, selling offices, persecuting supporters of the church. He's exiled for two years. But then two months into his sentence, this is marked up to him being marked for execution, uh, which is burning at stake. And the threat is extended to his children as well. So it's over for him. Yeah. He's got to get out. Understandably. And he would never return to Florence. He would spend his years in exile. Uh, He ended up going to Paris. And this is where he saw the Templars get persecuted. So his life's been destroyed. He can't go home. He can't see his family. He goes to Paris and he's in with his Templar buddies. And then they all start getting persecuted by the Pope and the King of France. And he sees them getting tortured and roasted alive in front of him. And that's the really the lesson for Dante. 
to shut up about his mystical orders. His visions. And the visions and what he's connected with. And he sees the attack on the Templars as like on a level with the crucifixion of Christ. Like Mm -hmm. he sees this as the greatest sin. But during his exile, he writes the Divine Comedy. And so Booth starts to ponder where the inspiration comes from. Well, not really inspiration, but where other works in history have written, have, have similar things have been written. He ends up mentioning uh, Virgil's epic poem, the, uh, uh, what's it called? The Arniad, the Arniad. And that's the journey to the underworld where it's the, was it the Trojan warrior? He, it's like that classic story where he has to seek out, I think his father, he has to seek out his father in the underworld. So he has to go through that journey, you know, where he goes underground. He has to travel on the river sticks. He's got to give the, what's the guy in the boat, the two coins, you know, yeah, that yeah. All connected to the old Greek story. And um, eventually he meets his father who shows him visions of the future and the destiny of Rome and the triumphs of future generations. He sees all these visions of the underworld. He sees people being tortured for their sins and all that sort of stuff. But eventually he makes it out. And that brings us to a retired British engineer in 1958. Okay. How do we skip forward to that? So this story of the Aeneid, the the story of this journey to the underworld written by Virgil. It's always been thought of as, again, it's one of these metaphors. It's like, you know, it's a journey of, it's all this metaphorical business of how your sins will be punished and you've got to learn from your deeds and how things you'd commit on earth will affect you in later life and all that sort of stuff. But in 1958, there's this retired British engineer, his name's uh, Robert Paget, and he had moved to southern Italy. He had settled down there. And he was a few miles northwest of Naples. And his hobby, this was what he wanted to do in retirement, was explore ancient ruins. And he had a special project. He had read Virgil's poem his entire life. And he was convinced that it wasn't a metaphor. He was convinced that it wasn't even a journey into an alternate dimension. He was convinced that the underworld was a real place and that he could find it. And in 1962, after being laughed at by academics and local authorities, he found it. What do you mean he found it? He found the underworld. What is it? Okay, so it was near the site of the famous oracle of the, the Sibyl of Kuma, which had been discovered 30 years earlier in this uh, archaeological dig. And there, in Virgil's text, there's... Uh, obviously ambiguity, but most people believed it was a fantasy, but maybe it was connected to this oracle, this historical oracle, or maybe it was just complete fiction. But Paget did all this digging and he basically found this complex. Like he found this secret entrance, he found this underground passageway, and he found all these tunnels and chambers. How had it possibly been undiscovered for for so many years? I don't know. I would it's love. Centuries. I want to find the book because he he wrote a book about his discovery. And on a later show, we might go into it because I don't know. Maybe he had a dream. Maybe he had mm-hmm. a vision, and there was like a stone slab he had to move or something, or he just collapsed and fell through a wall. But anyway, he found these chambers. They matched Virgil's description from the ancient poem perfectly. And in November of 1963, he did all this work and did all this research. 
He did this huge presentation. He did a press conference at the British Officers Club uh, in Italy, in Bagnoli. There was a huge crowd that turned up as well. And he's just about to, he's like very nervous. He's got all his papers and his slides and he goes up on the podium and he's like, <clears throat> he's about to give his speech. But immediately there's like a ba 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 Breaking news. President Kennedy has been shot. And the whole, because the room's full of press, they're like, ah! Oh! They immediately leave the room and start rushing to cover this story of President Kennedy being shot. And Paget is stuck there with no one to tell his story to. And so that's how, I mean, eventually he wrote a book and people started to look at his work, but it didn't it get the fanfare that was going to get. No one really paid any attention to what he had discovered. Now, decades later, we get to 2001. And after 20 years of trying to deal with Italian bureaucracy and red tape and deal with the authorities who said the site's unsafe and you can't go down there, the author, Mark Booth, says a good friend of his, Robert Temple, whose work we've covered on the show before, mm-hmm. he is finally given permission to reopen this ancient passageway and excavate the site. And he does it. He clears away the rubble and he starts pulling out the vegetation. He finds this narrow tunnel cut out of solid rock. It's kind of smooth and arched at the top and he kind of squeezes down there and he finds exactly what Paget, this engineer, had discovered in the 1960s. He descends to an artificial river and finds a passageway that branches off and rejoins the main passageway further on. He also discovers a Roman tile on the other side of the artificial river sticks. He finds graffiti saying Ilius, perhaps an allusion to Ilium, the Latin name for Troy, and also uh, Aeneas, the character of this poem. He climbs steps cut into rock. He looks down a chute where he can see flowing water, and there's a bricked-up entrance to an inner sanctum. It's basically like a completely constructed underground reproduction of Virgil's famous poem of the underworld. So is that what this is, though? Is this someone who has, or a group, obviously, that has read these poems and have just simply reconstructed it at some point in history? Or is it being implied here or inferred that this actually is the location that the poems were created from? You can look at it two ways, right? Some people would say that, that this this poem is representing something that occurred in this real underground ritual. I think it's a bit more subtle than that. I think, like Dante, Virgil's description is perhaps something that he experienced in an altered state of consciousness. He left his body, he went into another dimension. He actually saw some other area of existence, the underworld, to put it in a very simple term. And then he replicated it. But this was replicated as an initiation. This was part of these secret cults, these secret societies, who tried to recreate that experience that happened to, say, Virgil, for example, or someone who has a random vision. Well, it sounds very similar to what we've heard about, like, the ancient Greek psychomantiums or the oracle at Delphi, where, you know, only recently I was talking about the discovery of what appeared to be uh, vents that would allow the the venting and the, um, you know, the passageway of, mm. you know, sulfurous gases, which would induce altered states, which would allow people, like, so you would have to go into, it's almost like you were primed in this environment, and then you'd enter into a, a altered state, which would even propel you further into this 
place. You're totally right. And that's what he and his wife discovered because they mapped it, like I said, with Virgil's poem and it was identical. Like even the sequence of the way the poem's written, it's almost like it was Disneyland ride where you would go yeah. through these sections and it would take you to where you would meet your ancestors and your gods and where you'd be challenged by uh, like Cerberus, you know, the god of the, the underworld. Does it mention anything about uh, archaeoacoustics? Do you look at anything like that? Or, is, I mean, is it the idea that you'd go in there drunk or high and... Well, what Mark Booth does is he says, look, based on archaeological evidence, you can map out what typically would have happened in this initiation ritual. And it involves, just to give you a very brief summary, it involves the initiate basically being stripped naked um, given a, I was going to say the paddling of the swallowed ass. <laughs> given a maybe a white robe, and then they're they're thrust into the the dark, the first chamber, right? And one of the first things they do in the chamber is they drink from the waters of forgetfulness and the waters of memory. Mm -hmm. So there'd be two like goblets or two pools that they have that have to drink from. And he points out that in some of the discoveries, they've actually found depictions of plants on the walls in these temples, and those plants were psychedelic plants. There you go. Yeah, right. So the idea is they're just being drugged. Yep. They're on some kind of LSD-like concoction as soon as they go in there. Um, they then enter this labyrinth, and maybe the priests will be wearing animal masks, and they'll, they'll come to a junction where they can go to heaven, but they're always forced to go to the other path, which is into the underworld to face death. And they basically face ordeals and tests. We've heard um, one, one of these places that they dug up, there was a grate where the initiate would stand in pitch blackness, you know, high, completely high off their mind, and they would slaughter a bunch of bulls on this grate above them. So they would hear like horrible screams and cries and then be showered in blood like they're in hell. It's It would be uh, hell. Imagine being yeah, being under the influence and being subjected to that. It would yeah, be hell. You're high. And then, you know, the initiate would be made to take an oath and confess all their sins. Then they might uh, get whacked over the head and then they would have to meet their ancestors. And there's all sorts of evidence they've found how this really would be like almost like one of those ghost train rides at an amusement park. Yeah. Because they've found... But for a ritualistic purpose. They've found statues in these underground passageways, but the statue is hollow. So a, a priest or an initiate, another initiate, can climb inside... And will moan and yell and make noise. And so, yeah, the person will be high off their tits, covered in blood in pure darkness, and they might see in the torchlight this crazy statue of some underworld demon, and the demon will start talking to them. Yeah, yeah. And you would just f absolutely freak out. Like, you would go mad. But the whole point of this was to transform the candidate, put them in an altered state of consciousness, so that they would have this initiation and perhaps enter these other dimensions, be forcibly thrust into these other dimensions of existence, maybe experience something like Dante went through and Virgil wrote about. Um, and yeah, he points out that these sanctuaries were used by the elite all throughout the ancient world, but only a, f a chosen few knew the secrets of what actually happened in there. And anyone who tried to enter without permission would be killed. Mm. And these became powerful secret societies. Now, he includes evidence that these initiations still existed in Dante's time because we're obviously going back very early 
uh, way before him when we're talking about, you know, the Roman period. But there's these medieval illustrations from Ireland where you see all these monks. I'll see if I can turn my laptop around and show you. And they're basically kicking this poor bastard down a cave. <laughs> you see, they're just like... <laughs> it's like a hazing ritual. Like, get down there and we're going to drug you. Uh, so, yeah, he's climbing into this ave in, in Isle, cave in Ireland. And that's from like the 14th century. So, it matches Dante's time period. Um, and when you get to Dante's journey into the Inferno... It, it does kind of read like one of these rituals. So, this is where that school of thought comes into play. He's was, describing his journey. Was Dante his initiated vision. in this way? Is this where the vision came from? Was he stripped down, given psychedelic substances and thrust through this ritual? Ben, it, it seems more likely. Like, let's be honest. When you look at, and this isn't an isolated story. Like, when you look at the other collections of these types of stories of people describing these spaces and the traditions and the rituals that were practiced by, you know, multiple societies, whether secret or not, around this time, it suggests that these people were having very true visions of places elsewhere. So rather than it being this, you know, oh, it's a metaphor or, oh, it's, you know, it's a way to interpret you know, the, the understanding of one's... No, it's like the guy's describing a journey that he went on. Yeah, and when I say journey, don't, a mis- trial. don't misunderstand and think that he's just going through this cave of politics. I, I think Dante did go to another dimension. I think Dante did see a real existence where there are layers of the underworld he and he he eventually describes going to the heavens as well, and the language and what he describes is so similar to what we've covered in near death experiences. Over Absolutely, the years. yeah, very it, similar. It's it's undoubtedly him entering other dimensions of existence, um, and Virgil becomes his guide on his journey, and he describes you know encountering all these spirit animals that come out and attack him, and Virgil has to take him down. There's this great moment where he's. He's seeing all these entities tortured and people being punished for their sins. And there's like a swirl of whirlwind where people that were lustful are kind of caught up in this endless lust. But there's a point where he sees these trees and he he snaps a twig off a tree. And the tree's like, ah, what did you do that for? And all this blood starts coming out of the tree. And Dante learns that the souls of suicides are trapped in these trees. And he looks out and there's just a forest of these people like twisted, stuck in the trees. And he sees um, men being consumed by snakes, like very um, kind of crafty snake-like merchants who would cheat people. They get consumed by snakes and they become snakes themselves. And he sees how this is just punishment because there were snakes in their human life. There were serpents. Um, eventually he sees like an ice lake, people trapped in ice who are counterfeiters and, and scammers. Um, but eventually he's led to the deepest floor of hell and he sees giants there. He thinks they're towers, but he then feels this wind against his cheeks. And through the gloom, he sees two gigantic wings. And as he approaches, he sees that they're like a bat's wings. They're flexible. And they're like the sails of this huge windmill where they're covering the entire sky. And he realizes it's Lucifer. And the formerly beautiful angel is hideous. There's three heads that come into view, six weeping eyes, three mouths, and this bloody foam pouring out that tears sinners to pieces. And it's almost like that... um, 
video game Shadow of the Colossus where they're climbing these giant creatures because Virgil, his guide, basically they jump on Lucifer's hairy, like hairy bat skin and they start climbing down him and they find some kind of um, entrance in the rock in this dark, horrible depth of hell. And Virgil's like, quick, we've got to go. And they climb down there. And uh, it's weird. It's like this weird Alice in Wonderland moment where they're climbing downwards, but then all of a sudden everything, like the dimensionality flips and he realizes they're actually traveling upwards. It's just a really strange inversion. Mm. Um, and but is it because like they pass the test, so they're going back up? Well, it's it's basically the entrance to purgatory, and then they go oh. through all the levels of purgatory. He cleanses his sins, and then he meets Be- uh, Beatrice in heaven. Beatrice becomes his guide of heaven, and his description of heaven is like soaring through. And he he has lines that are identical to when we hear people in NDEs say. What I was seeing was realer than real. And yeah. what I was hearing were like notes you can't hear in the human world. It's like all colors like, that you can't imagine. And, exactly. Yeah. It's it's all identical. And ultimately he has this experience of God and and returns and gets to see his love, Beatrice. Now, this when he wrote all this down, he he said the object of the divine comedy was an initiation when people read it, when people read through it, it was meant to be almost a form of initiation for themselves. So the reader, the object of the whole work, he said, is to make those who live in this life leave their state of misery and lead them to a state of happiness. The the work itself was an initiation. So Booth goes through all the tenets that emerge from this secret school that he believes Dante was a part of, and you've got many aspects of Western religion, but also many aspects of Eastern religion. I'll link to some of those in the show notes. But ultimately, how this kind of ties together with the Templars is the the, the description of the Templars and the temple at Jerusalem, the clue to their real intentions is that they were digging. They were digging tunnels underneath the temple. And I'll, in the show notes, I'll link to a bunch of articles that only came out, I think, in 2019, where they found even more tunnels that the Templars had built. There's like 800 meters of new tunnels were found. What are Just, they? Are they emergency exits or like, what's the point of the tunnels? They're one of these initiation tunnels. Oh, that's what that's what Booth believes the Templars were doing. They were building out the most insane Disneyland. It's like the, the, a bunch of Star Wars rides at Disneyland <laughs> while you're high on LSD and covered in pig's blood so that you're forced into this mystical experience to be initiated into the Templar cult. But by the time Dante and his teacher Latini were initiated into the Templars, you couldn't go to Jerusalem, right? It was It was too dangerous. So, This takes us back to that cabbage lady in the square in Florence. Remember, she was saying that people would enter these secret underground tunnels, that underneath the plaza, there were rumoured to be all these tunnels and secret entrances and pits and everything. So, is that were they being initiated? It's because there was probably an initiation centre under there. So, the fact that she said that they weren't returning, could that also suggest that they were going out like another door? Well, Booth said not everyone would survive this initiation. Many oh, people would wow. die. Like, a lot of people would go down and never come out. And he also speculates, like, it would be a good way to get rid of someone as well. You know, take yeah, them, well, we'll take drug them, them and leave them stumbling down there. Take them down there. 
Now, Dante spent the last three years of his life at Ravenna, and there he finished writing the Divine Comedy. He went on a diplomatic mission to Venice on behalf of his friend with whom he was staying, but on the way he caught malaria, and he died on the 14th of September in 1321. But years later, in Florence, the Florentines petitioned the Pope to return his remains. But when they opened his coffin, it was empty. Did he fake his death? No one really knows what happened to Dante. And if you look back through the mystery of the Essenes and the raising of Lazarus and some of this conspiracy surrounding these mystical Christian cults, there are some of these examples where, you know, a tomb is opened for Lazarus, for example, but all they find inside are his clothes. And that's mm. it. It's like his body's vanished. Well, Some kind of ninja trick. Well, that, or it's kind of like what was described with Jesus, right? It's the same kind of concept. Yeah. So, the, I guess what Booth is kind of, if you read between the lines, he's saying if you mastered these mystical schools, you had the ability to enter and exit different dimensions of existence well, at essentially your will. teleport. You could teleport, you can come and go as you please, like a St. Germain-style character. Yeah. And it's said that, of course, someone like St. Germain would be part of one of these mystical schools as well. Padre Pio. Now, there's an epilogue to this story that involves his sons, which I'll tell you in the break after the break coming up. Because after he died, Dante's Divine Comedy wasn't complete. There were all these missing chapters. And in Florence, they wanted to publish it. And they said to his sons, you know, you've got to try and write the end. But his sons are like, we don't know how to write this. Like how we need to find our father's lost manuscripts to complete the divine comedy. And I'll share with you after the break how maybe he was able to enter and exit different dimensions of existence. That's coming up in our plus extension. Head to seriousuniverse.org forward slash plus to find out the details. And Aaron's got some uh, incredible stuff coming up. That as well. ties in actually very nicely with uh, some of the stories I'm going to be describing of entering into the Akasha. So the Akasha is not as in Akashic. The Akasha is like this Eastern philosophy that's been you know described of another space. It's another uh, dimensional place that you go into. It allows you to see the energy layers of what is happening in our world. And it kind of follows on from what we were talking about only in the last uh, show about John Cruise and about the healing and intention, well, it doesn't just apply to healing. It also applies to fate itself, the outcome of what happens in your life, uh, the appearance of doppelgangers, vartigas, uh, guardian angels, torpor-like entities. They all come forth in this other space, and depending on how you enter it, and you can enter this space through dreams. You can enter it through using hallucinogenic substances. You can meditate. You can prayer. You can intention your way into it. You get into this space. You can accidentally fall into this space. But really? In, but in doing so, you might pick up something that you don't necessarily uh, expect, is the way I'll describe. I won't, I won't say not want, but not expect. You might bring back some kind of demon from the underworld. Uh, in some circumstances, yes. But in other circumstances, uh, you might bring back something very positive and something very wonderful. Uh, but also, it might help you to, uh, through you know, accessing this realm, get information that can save your family as well. So those sorts of stories are coming up in our Plus Extension after the break. But before we go, we should mention New Dawn Magazine, Ben. Yeah, we've done this special uh, collaboration with our favourite magazine, NewDawnMagazine.com. The brand new issue is a Mysterious Universe special issue. Yeah. It's all our content. It's all our articles. Aaron wrote this incredible uh, editorial. Uh, I selected... You've done all the art. I did some of the AI artwork. We, we selected all the pieces 
And it was a real pleasure to work with the guys at New Dawn because it's a fantastic magazine and we just wanted to send it your way. It's volume 17, number one. You can find them at newdawnmagazine.com and uh, we'll link to it in the show notes as well. If you're in Australia, of course, you can pick it up at any news agencies. Apparently, it's been out there. I haven't gone just yet, but uh, I've been told by the editors that it's there. It's for sale right now. Uh, Go and pick up a hard copy because it's a little bit fun to pick up a hard copy. We're just saying, you know, we don't normally when we get stuff, we get PDFs. So to pick up a hard copy, it's got this real kind of feeling of nostalgia to it, and I love it. It's all glossy. Yeah, it is glossy, yeah. It's a nice big full-page ad for us on the back. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's nice. This weird man trying to walk into a pyramid before he's obliterated. (laughs) Check it out, newdawnmagazine.com, and again, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. Sign up today for all the extras. You get access to the big extensions we do every single Friday, and plus members get an exclusive show Every single Tuesday as well, you're getting more than double the content. When you sign up, you also get a higher quality MP3 of the show, totally ad-free version of the show. And if you sign up for MU Max, you get access to our ginormous back catalogue. Sign up today, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. That's a wrap for this free edition of the show. Thanks for listening. If you're on Plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break. For everyone else, we'll catch you next week.